Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. So my father coined the, the famous slogan, drop the gun, pick up the pen. And in Somali, that's This is a quote that you can still see marked up on the ruined walls of Mogadishu. When Ilwad Elman travelled to Somalia in 2010, she was returning for the first time in her memory to the place where her parents built a family together and the place where that was torn apart. Till today, no one knows who exactly pulled the trigger, but it's common knowledge of who made the order. And this was a political assassination because of his command and ability to actually provide an alternative to those that were actually being used to perpetuate conflict. Ilwad's father, Elman Ali Ahmed, is still remembered locally as the Somali father of peace, a man who dedicated his life to disarming child soldiers and ending conflict in the country he loved. It was the work he died for, and it's the work Ilwad's come home to carry on. Very quickly I learned that most people only saw me as a woman, a young woman at that, that spoke broken Somali, that grew up in the West, and that alone dismissed any audience. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. Hello. Hello. Hi, Ilwad. It's Lucy here from The Guardian. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. This week, I'm talking to Ilwad Elman about rebuilding Somalia. So, Ilad, you were born in Somalia, but you moved when you were very small. Uh, What happened? Well, I left Somalia, as millions of other Somalis have, around the early 90s when the war broke out. I was a year and a half when I left Somalia. My mother and my sisters and I spent a few years in Kenya in a refugee camp called Otango, which later morphed into what is now the world's largest refugee camp, Didab. And... After a few years, we got asylum in Canada, and that's where I spent the majority of my life until 2010 when I moved back to Somalia. And when did you start to become aware of your family's humanitarian work? Have you come from quite quite a background? Well, I've always known about my, my family's humanitarian work. It's something that my mother never let us forget, partially because my father was killed in Somalia in 1996, and she wanted us 
to to know him and to know the incredible things that he did and also being in Canada and anywhere I met Somali people when they would hear my last name and they would they would clarify and ask are you Elman's daughter some people would burst out into tears and cry and I'd always want to learn more what is it that this person did that is touching people years after he has passed so tell us about your father Elman Ali Ahmed what did he do and why was he so well regarded in the community my father was an ardent peace activist. He and my mother used to work together, but I think he, he was just an incredible force. He left Somalia at a very young age himself. He was an orphan, not by his parents having passed away, but just ne- a neglected child on the street. He was a shoe polisher. And well after the Italian colonization of Somalia, Italy still had a lot of social services available to vulnerable Somalis. And he was one of many young people that were lucky enough to go to Italy through one of these social programs and got to study there. And he went to high school there, went to university there. And then later he went to Germany, where he did his master's to become an electrical engineer. And that led him back to Somalia. He wanted to give back to kids that were still on the street living in the same circumstances that he had the opportunity to break away from. And this was well before the war. So he set up businesses throughout Muktishu, and most of them were electric repair, electric shops and mechanic shops. He opened the first 24-hour garage service. And all of the young people that he would hire were youth that were living on the streets, that had been orphaned, that were dealing with drug and substance abuses. And then when the war broke out, he shifted his focus on the young people that were being forcefully conscripted into the conflict, that were being used by unscrupulous warlords that were essentially exploiting them to become human shields. He was giving them an alternative, a dignified life of providing for themselves or remaining with warlords and being a tool for causing conflict. And when he was so successful in demobilizing young people by the thousands, This sent a very shocking message to the warlords that if we don't get him out of the picture, we're going to lose all of our foot soldiers. And eventually that is one of the things that led to him him being killed. He had this famous slogan. So my father coined the, the famous slogan, drop the gun, pick up the pen. And in Somali, that's This is a quote that you can still see marked up on the ruined walls of Muktishu. Sorry to ask you, but but what happened to him? What happened to him is that he was sending a message that young people should drop the guns, that he he himself should not be guarded by weapons. He walked around the street freely. He did not have any security, yet he was demobilizing and disarming thousands of young people that were fighting for warlords. And ultimately what happened is three gunmen shot him. Till today, no one knows who exactly pulled the trigger, but... It's common knowledge of who made the order. And this was a political assassination because of his command and ability to actually provide an alternative to those that were actually being used to perpetuate conflict. Must have been hard for your mother to to help you girls actually get to know him. I really feel like I know my father a lot without having any real memories of time with him because of the stories she shared with my sisters and I about him. And um, it's an incredible feeling to get to know a parent through the lens of people who he has impacted. And our upbringing in Canada, my mother would always tell us that as soon as my sisters and I are ready to take care of ourselves, she was going to go back to Somalia and to continue the work that she and my father were doing. 
So tell us about your mother, another remarkable person, Fatuna Dan. What's her legacy? What, what's she been building up for you in Somalia? My mother went back to Somalia to continue the work that she and my father were doing, and that was protecting and promoting human rights and providing services for the most vulnerable members of the community. When she went back, it was at arguably the height of the conflict in Somalia in 2007. And when she went back to Somalia, she was met with a lot of resistance for being a woman who dared to uphold my father's name and his legacy. She reignited the organization that honors him and his legacy, the Elman Peace Center. But a lot of the resistance came from my uncles, from my father's side. Because unfortunately, a harmful traditional practice in my culture is that if a woman does not have any sons, then she bears no right to any inheritance or bears no right to anything associated with legacy. So she was challenged in the most trying of ways. In addition to that, she also founded the first rape crisis center. And this was in response to the rampant sexual violence that was the big, dark, dirty, yet open secret that was happening in Somalia that everyone knew and saw happening, but no one dared speak about it. And how was it that you came to return to Somalia? When I returned to Somalia, I had initially decided to come back to visit her because despite knowing why she went to Somalia and growing up with all the stories of the incredible work that my father did and what she had hoped to do, I couldn't understand what was really compelling her to stay in Somalia, especially when all we saw in mainstream media was bombings and utter carnage and suffering and violence and we'd lose contact with her for weeks at a time sometimes and I ne- absolutely I needed to just be able to understand what she was doing and why it was so worth it so what did you encounter when you got there that made you want to stay when I went back to Somalia I I had hoped I would not see all of the terrible things that I thought I would but If I painted any other different picture, it would be a lie. I really was confronted with everything that I worried. It was in the middle of the war, the war that we hear about or that we see portrayed in movies, that was literally in my backyard. There was mortars, there was bombs, there was roadside bombs, there was everything that would terrify and scare someone was happening right there. And then amidst all of that, she was still waking up every morning and helping hundreds of people. To be honest, I mean, I I was inspired by the work that she was doing, but it wasn't until I saw the level of resistance that she was receiving because she was a woman that I felt felt the responsibility to stay, to help her. There was a moment actually where an uncle of mine came into the center and shot up the facility just for everyone that was there to disperse. So every time she would organize an event, there would be a car that would crash into the gate. There would be someone that would come in and like shoot up the place so that everyone would run away and abandon her. So it it was much more than just cultural and gender-based constraints that she was having. And what, what exactly did you meet in the way of resistance? You described what your mother was dealing with, the prejudices against her, the, the cultural expectations. But what did you find as a young girl who could be dismissed as someone who grew up elsewhere? One of the things I learned very quickly is that no matter how great ideas that I think I may have for solving all of the problems of Somalia, very quickly I learned that most people only saw me as a woman, a young woman at that, that spoke broken Somali, that grew up in the West, 
and that alone dismissed any audience. I've had entire rooms of men walk out on me just because of these different factors that I could not shed because they are part and parcel of me. After this short break, we'll hear more about Ilwad's work and how she and her sister have chosen very different paths to peace. She was very frustrated with our approach, actually, to be honest. She felt that we were doing a lot of response work and she wanted to create a safer environment. And for her, that started off with security. Small Changes will be back after this quick break. 
Absolutely. My sister is um, quite a woman. She she came back to Somalia a few years after I, and on a similar pursuit, I think, to understand what was compelling my sister, my mother and I to be in Somalia. And when she came, she started working with us initially. She was teaching English to survivors of sexual violence, young girls, children, and it broke her heart every day. And she was very frustrated with our approach, actually, to be honest. She felt that we were doing a lot of response work and she wanted to create a safer environment. And for her, that started off with security. So she enlisted in the military and she's a commander in the military, Somali National Armed Forces. Well, that's quite something, quite pioneering. Absolutely. <laughs> so how significant is that to be a, a female commander in the Somali military? It is an incredible feat and it's not something that just happened overnight. She had to take an insane amount of risks to prove herself and anything that a man would do, she would have to do 10 times more just to be considered. And she had the opportunity to work directly with um, a very seasoned force commander who, who was killed recently. But she, she worked with him and she was part of all of the operations that liberated South, Southern Somalia. That inspired a lot of other young women to get involved with the Somali National Army. And what's, what's been the reaction to that back in Canada or in your wider family? I mean, I think, I mean, she was met with a lot of challenges, even something as the uniform. People thought it was absurd that she would actually wear the pants, the, the military uh, fatigues as they're meant to be worn. But now it's a very common sight to see young women and older women as well, too, wearing the fatigue as they're supposed to be worn. And for my family, it was definitely a shock and it was scary. And I think my mom already had a little bit of a panic attack of me being in Somalia with her doing this difficult work. But then to have her youngest, her youngest daughter to also be in the military was um, difficult at first. But she found her path and her purpose. And there's nothing that we could have done to deter her. And I don't think we would. You've definitely been someone who's seized opportunities and you've spoken at the UN Security Council. You've done all sorts of amazing things for, for someone in their 20s. What's next? Where do you go from here? Hmm. <laughs> I, I think what's next for me is perhaps more of a leadership role so that I can prevent some of these issues from happening. And whether that's through more policy work making sure that more young people and their role are institutionalized in the processes that ensure their well-being. I want to ensure that young people working in these spaces that are traditionally so old are not just looked at as beneficiaries or implementing partners, but that we actually have a role and a stake at making decisions and designing interventions, mediating conflict, being a part of drafting peace agreements. I want to, in the future, work towards more preventative solutions. If there's one thing you could help the rest of the world understand about Somalia or something that frustrates you that, that perhaps uh, people from outside don't fully understand, what would that be? Well, there's a lot of things I feel are misrepresented about Somalia. For most people, when they think about Somalia, they'll think war, they'll think terror, or they'll think piracy. And those are all three things that have plagued the country, but there's so much more. I think that what people would be shocked to learn is that 
with a lot of the global discourse right now on cryptocurrency and opening up the, the free global markets, Solana is quite advanced actually. No one really uses cash anymore. Everything that we use is mobile banking. We have the longest coastline in Africa. It's a beautiful white untouched beaches and it's a place I know will become a tourism haven one day once we have peace. And lastly, Somalia is known as the land of poets. And that in itself, I think, is important for people to know because we've been through so much. But through poetry, through storytelling, and through our very oral society, we're able to survive. If you liked this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, leave us a review and tell us about it. You can join the discussion on Twitter. We're at Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us there or email us at podcasts at theguardian.com. Small Changes is produced by Gabrielle Jones, Rowan Slaney and Danielle Stevens. I'm Lucy Lamble. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 